0: Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, a series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is Nadia Hajj. She's an assistant professor at Wellesley College and the author of a new book, Protection Amid Chaos, The Creation of Property Rights in Palestinian Refugee Camps. Uh, Nadia, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: So this book is, uh, is a really interesting look at how Palestinians actually live in refugee camps and how they organize their lives. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you were thinking writing the book and what you were trying to understand.
1: Yeah, so this project was originally motivated by you know, physical changes that I had noticed in the camps um, over the course of my research trips. You know, when you had when I had initially read about refugee camps in the literature or talked about it casually with people, they imagined tented fields, you know, or temp- very temporary places unworthy of investment where people would just be struggling daily to survive. But when I started visiting the camps in 2004, the camps looked really different than these impermanent, you know, unworthy of investment types of places. And people were doing much more than surviving; they were actually thriving. And physically, you could see this. Like over time, the homes had become more permanent structures. There were businesses. There were paved roads. There was a real estate market. There was a lot of entrepreneurship going on. And the literature, and you know, um, institutional literature and economics literature. Didn't really explain why would people do that if they knew they were in a refugee camp? Why would someone invest in the world around them? And so this kind of began the question, how do communities, you know, live in these places and create their own sense of order? And I started to think that um, property rights were one key tool or vehicle for creating order, and that, They served more than just an economic purpose. It wasn't just about protecting assets, but the way in which Palestinians constructed property rights became um, kind of a vehicle or a way of enshrining their communal identity. So it served more than just protecting an economic asset. It was also about protecting the communal identity in a place that was under a lot of threat by much more powerful host states and nationalist parties that would float through.
0: Give us a concrete example. When you say property rights, like give us something specific. Like, what does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah. So initially in the camps after forty-eight, agreements were largely informal, and so not, there were no written titles. So understandings of property were largely based on pre-1948 norms of communal organization and protection.
0: So, like, who owns this house? Yes, who owns this and seal.
1: ownership of homes wasn't in an individual. It was always in the family or clan um name and then organi- so that's how claims were meted out initially in the camps. you own this tent your whole family does. How do you protect this? there's no state, there's no police force there's no recognized legal sovereign and so they used these pre-1948 norms of honor and shame. so the Hamuli the family and the tribe were kind of the basis of claims and then protection of those claims was based on, notions of honor and shame, this notion of a'ib, and it's a really low-cost and effective way of kind of self-policing the community. When people stepped out of the bounds of what was considered appropriate behavior, they were reined in oftentimes by their own family, and so you had this easily kind of self-replicating system of property rights. So initially it was informal, but the story doesn't end there. I think um, beginning in 69 and 70, once Fetih, um So this is
0: in Jordan, you mean, or in Lebanon? In
1: Lebanon, when Svetih came in um, under the PLO, and also in Jordan, once the Jordanian state was reasserting dominance over the camps after Black September, you have a reconfiguration of property rights. What were once informal claims became much more formal. And that was largely the impetus of these outside actors that wanted for, I think, not necessarily economic reasons, but often nationalist political reasons to kind of claim the Palestinian identity in their name. Um, But Palestinians weren't exactly too keen on that. They weren't like, oh yes, I'll willingly submit to an outsider's um, system of organization. So whereas Palestinians did register claims formally, so there are in fact written titles, and I provide a few in the appendix of my book, um, while they are written, um, they are not enforced by those outsiders that sought to create them. They are still enforced with the family and with the village. The Ahl al is still the kind of primary um, claimants, and also these notions of Um, honor and shame continue to be the driving force behind protecting these assets and Rarely do they ever go to the nationalist party or the host state level to resolve a conflict
0: now the camps that you looked at Did Mm -hmm. they tend to recreate specific villages or areas from uh, from former Palestine? Or were they mixes of different communities and did that make a difference?
1: Yeah, so um, One thing that I think is astounding and I'm not the first person to recognize this. There's a whole host of other scholars, um, Sirhan, um, you know, Rochelle Davis, so many other people have recognized that the camps are not just randomly strewn about individuals living in this place. Most camps replicate pre-1948 villages, so people that were neighbors prior to 1948, their families continue to remain neighbors and those neighboring villages from that same region are replicated in the camps. And this um, this has good things and bad things to it because on the one hand, um, it's a really positive thing because you have usually shared ideas of what's appropriate behavior and you have a shared understanding of how we've done this in the past. But there's also the flip side of that, that old feuds and disputes continue to persist till this day in the camps. <coughs> and so I think that... Um, this, I think, is common, not just um, in camps in Lebanon, but across all camps in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. I should note that I wasn't able to do research in um, Gaza or the West Bank, so my research is primarily located in in the host states outside of that area.
0: So when when you look at these camps, uh, you know, one of the things which you know, is interesting is that you mentioned uh, how they didn't meet your original expectations. Part of that is just they've been there for so long. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a sense, uh, maybe it's not surprising that they would become these kind of more ordinary communities. Um, And yet, you see them developing in ways that really don't look like what you would expect from just like a normal neighborhood in Jordan or Lebanon.
1: Yeah, I think that... uh, So I would... Kind of so I think sometimes people view the Palestinian camps as quite exceptional because of their longevity, but the reality is that in, at least in the human rights literature, most refugees on average, spent worldwide, spend 15 to 18 years in a camp. That's and they're often referred to as warehoused refugees, like they've been kind of put in these places. So you know that's a long time. That's the you know the lifespan you know or like coming to adulthood or a generation. Um, are growing up in these camps knowing no other place. And this is around the world. So I think um, that many camps become these kind of weird spaces where they're not totally temporary and impermanent, and they're not fixed states like sovereign boundaries either. And so you're in this legal gray space. And I think that's a key component to... um, why because they're in this gray legal space they can't really look to a state to solve their problems and so when you said they don't necessarily mimic the behavior of Jordanian or Lebanese towns i think that's a product of the you know the fact that they live in these transitional settings there's really no one else to look to other than themselves and i think the passing trend of different political parties, nationalist political parties that have, you know, come into favor and then gone out, um, that... Palestinians, especially outside of the West Bank and Gaza, are kind of skeptical of their commitment to actually making changes in the camps. So they turn inward um, much um, differently than I think we'd look at other populations, that they look to this primary social organizing units of family and tribe.
0: Now, you describe this mostly as kind of this endogenous or internal development of order based on you know tribal norms and, and family and, and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. What about unruly? and the authority actually responsible for the camps, how did they interact with these kind of endogenous processes?
1: Yeah, Unrua is a really um, unique beast <laughs> of sorts. Um, you know, on the one hand, it is the primary um, employer of Palestinians in the camps, and also um, they provide basic welfare, health, and social services. So the education programs in the health system and and the food you know, products are all labeled with UNRWA. And that's that's providing the vehicle of services to Palestinians. But UNRWA is really very, very insistent and careful. And and in my many interviews with people, you know, the local camp directors as well as area officers, um, they reiterate time and again that we provide services, but we don't interfere in the internal political affairs of the camps. The governance of the resources they give to them. Once it's been delivered to the Palestinians, the Palestinians can do what they want with that space um, or with that, you know, that food stuff or whatever um, resource they're being given. And so, um, whereas I think um, UNRWA is providing really important resources, they're not a primary player in terms of governance of the camp.
0: When, when the refugees first arrived, um, you know, did, did UNRWA do as many the refugee camps do these days, like just tell people, okay, here's your tent, here's your uh, here's your card, here's your rations, or was it just so disorganized at that time that people just came and kind of set up wherever?
1: Yeah, so what's interesting is UNRWA actually, uh, you know, UNRWA predates the UNHCR, um, and that's why Palestinians don't fall under that category, but UNRWA was developed in real time at the same time as the Palestinian refugee crisis was unfolding. So initially when Palestinians became refugees, the Red Cross was actually the primary service and welfare provider for Palestinians. So in the early days after the war, um, they were given um, an identity number, families were, and um, the Red Cross helped move them after a period of time to different locations and they tried to keep villages and areas together. Um, but UNRWA kind of is developing in real time, and that's why I, you know, there's a really unique definition of Palestinian refugee. Um, anyone that is descendant from a refugee is still a refugee today, which is an unusual one, even if you even if you weren't born in the camps. Um, and so there's a lot of disorganization even in kind of the definition of what it is to be a Palestinian refugee. Um, and there's also um, a lot of... Uh there's a lot of disorganization in the sense of what UNRWA views, I think, as its primary mission. Um, I think, at times, they wanted to be more involved, but they always also sought to get donations from abroad, from international donors. And so they were in a very tricky spot. And I think they've resolved that conflict, at least internally, from what I understand, by providing the services but t- maintaining as much of a hands-off um um, kind of policies they can with respect to governance um, in the context of the camp what happened once Unrua came in as soon as a family arrived in the camps with the Red Cross ID Unrua gave them a tent and um, the tent the base the size of the tent was based on the size of your family but they did not tell you where to set your camp up where to put your tent up that was a self-organizing decision and I don't want to pretend either that it was happy that everyone came in and said oh well I'll move to this really back corner and I'll be at the prime spot close to the beach where there's a little bit of air you know especially in if you're in like northern Lebanon on the Mediterranean Sea close to Tripoli um, you know there were a series of camp battles inside many of these camps where families fought over the best spot to put their tent. Um, but I think, some, in some ways, the hands-off nature of UNRWA allowed Palestinians to discover amongst themselves what worked or didn't work. And time and again, the recurrent theme I heard in Palestinian narratives during the interviews was, we had to create order amidst the chaos that um, we had no choice but to solve this for ourselves because no one was going to help us. And in some ways not having someone coddling you or holding your hand as you're going through this process, I think allowed Palestinians to develop much more authentic institutions that really resonated with reality on the ground.
0: Now, you talked about how this becomes uh, written down at a certain point, and um, and you actually have like you know the equivalent of deeds and yes. and, and, and like formal property rights. Does that change the way that like? Uh, Conflicts are adjudicated and, you know, basically who decides when, when you have these disagreements? Does, does it become more bureaucratized?
1: So this is what was very interesting. I had expected, once I discovered that there were these formal titles that kind of pro- popped up in the camps around 69 and 70 in Lebanon, Jordan, and in Syria, where I did some research as well, um, I thought that most, um, either the Jordanian state, Fatah, or the Syrians, um, set up like uh, popular camp committees. And this was the actual physical place where Palestinians had to go to register their claims. And it's ostensibly also the place where adjudication and resolution of conflict should also occur. But I had the opportunity to witness a dispute being resolved in real time in 2005, and again in 2007 when I was doing some research, and what was astounding was this: the the arbitrator, the way the decision was ultimately, um, you know, decided. What didn't happen because some political leader or whoever you know, was claiming to be the most dominant group in the camps decided. In fact, it was largely through notions of communal consensus and drawing on, they brought out the Quran and they um, brought it to the table. It was a widow and her um, brother-in-law um, were disputing the sale of an apartment above her home and um, the widow was upset that the brother-in-law had to, wanted to sell the home and that a strange man could be living above her and her family. And the brother-in-law said, but I really need to sell this because I want to get married myself, and the only way I can afford to get married is if I sell the roof of your home. And besides, technically, it is my space. Your brother left it to me. His, Her husband, his brother, left it to him. And so if it had been a purely efficient kind of property rights system and it was purely a bureaucratic decision, the brother-in-law had the right to sell the apartment. And truly, whether or not the widow care, you know, her interests really didn't matter. Um, But what was interesting is in that moment, instead of just saying the brother-in-law wins, the decision was made to um, call some religious officials and some family members, respected family members, from her side and his side and have them come in to talk. Time and again, the people said, "We are here to reach a consensus that not only honors his right to sell, but also our communal reinforces our communal norms." And so, from the Quran, there's a verse that um, you know make it's incumbent upon all Muslims to protect widows and orphans in society. And this kind of quote was this selection from the Quran was said multiple times. And the brother-in-law, um, finally relents and agrees that yes, I'll, I'm going to sell this place, but only I will only sell it to someone that the widow approves of so that it's not a strange man entirely. And so I feel like that instance or that moment is a way of showing how um, property rights, there is this formal titling system, but still these informal notions of how we met out justice in the camp and how we resolve conflict resonates with a communal identity that predates the refugee camp.
0: Now one of the interesting things in the book is you are able to look at uh, the Nahrabad camp, uh, which is destroyed. Yes, and then you have to that you're able to observe the reconstruction of the camp in real time. So, what did you see then in terms of this kind of blank slate, but not really?
1: Yeah, so this was this was one of those moments when you're writing your dissertation and you're like, oh boy, what have I done? I'm not going to ever be able to finish because I was in the camp in March when Fatah <clears throat> al-Islam first came into Nahal Um a non-Palestinian group comes in and launches this attack against. Um, Uh, the Lebanese later on in May, but they had already been in the camp in March. And they set off a bomb in the camp actually in March while I was there. And I was like, okay, things are getting too hot, maybe I should move to Jordan for a little bit. Um, And so, but I could tell things were going downhill quite quickly. And then in May, once Fatah al-Islam launched this attack against the Lebanese government, Nahd al-Badid was caught in the crosshairs and destroyed, ironically, also on the anniversary of the Nakba of May 15th. So Palestinians and Nahd refer to it as the second Nakba. Hmm. And so um, at that moment, it wasn't entirely clear if the camp would be rebuilt. And it was only through international intervention and kind of a consortium of countries coming together and UNRWA that the camp was allowed to be rebuilt. But the Lebanese... Um, quite upset about the fact that there's attacks being launched from within these, you know, territories that are outside of its control, or these, sorry, camps that are outside of its control. Says, fine, you can rebuild the camps, but Palestinians own nothing in the camp. And so at that moment, I truly felt, okay, this is the end of property rights. This is the end of the system that's been constructed for so long. Um, And, but what's very interesting is that um, as the camp is rebuilt, uh, the United Nations Relief Works Agency, among others, decides that when we rebuild the camp we must maintain the social fabric of the camp. And the way to do that is to make sure that neighbors prior to 2007 remain neighbors after 2007 as the camp is rebuilt, which means that these pre-1948 ways of doing things are going to continue after this new camp is built, the new Nehdev added. Um, and what's fascinating is, how do you know who's a neighbor to who? <coughs> this is where um, you have a de facto recognition of formal titles in the camps among Palestinians because um, the Reconstruction Commission created something called a validation map. And it's a there's a cool map in the book that you can look and see this, but Every Palestinian family was invited into this little office and had to sign their name where they had lived, on this, like, a little block. But how did they prove they owned this? It would, you could imagine it would be rational for some people to say, I own this giant swath of the camp, you know, let me claim this. But instead, Palestinians had used the titles that the Lebanese said, did not matter and couldn't count? But they used the titles that had predated the second Nakba and used those to prove that this is where they had lived. And then they had to have the neighbors on either side of them authenticate that claim and bring in their own claims. So you see a replicate. So today, it's like, I guess now we could say property rights 3.0. But you have property rights 3.0, where you have, again, like no one officially recognizing these titles, but they're very much selling and buying homes again in the camps, and people are passing them on to their children, and they're still being forced using these communal norms.
0: Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Nadia Hajj. She's author of the new book, Protection Amid Chaos, the Creation of Property Rights in Palestinian Refugee Camps, just published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Nadia, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.